Podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. All right, 11 o'clock hour, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, with you here until noon. Governor Kim Reynolds momentarily. Uh, we'll hear her uh, daily press conference and then Matt Rudy at 1135 from uh, Golf Digest. We lost our Cyclone guy over the weekend, huh? We did, yeah. Man. Alex Halstead hanging it up. Yeah, good for him. Uh, moving on, but uh, that's, what is it? We lost Dylan and yes. Alex within, boom, like a month or so, right? Yeah, those are our Cyclone guests throughout the football and basketball yeah. season and, and off season as well. We're looking for Cyclone content. Help and, wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll start to dig plans. in. Got yeah. a couple of plans. But, 24-7. Uh, that's, that's a pretty big blow you got to figure to their ooh. Cyclone site, too. He's done a really nice job. It's a big blow to Cyclone fans yes. because recruiting-wise, this mm-hmm. kid, he busts his hump. He really does. So uh, there's a void there. Uh, be anxious to see who takes that role, but he's uh, moving on. Hopefully we'll get him on one more time to you know, to uh, to thank him and you know, reminisce about some of the big stories Cyclone-wise that he covered uh, during his career. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, we have her? We do. Let's get it unmuted. For a per capita rate of 1 in 31 Iowans tested, and that is unique test, there's no duplications. 7,324 Iowans have recovered for a recovery rate of 49%. Hospitalizations remain stable, and it's been 18 days since we reported Iowa's highest positive cases, and days to double is now at 21 days. We continue to trend in the right direction, further validating that the time is right to move into the recovery phase and begin reopening Iowa. Over the weekend, some Iowans went out to eat at a local restaurant, worked out at their gym, or finally got a haircut. Others chose to remain home and wait a little longer before venturing out in this way, and some businesses decided to take additional time before reopening to ensure they and their staff are prepared to implement preventative measures designed to protect themselves and their customers. Regardless of whether you're ready to resume some of your normal activities or choosing to wait, we respect that decision. Only you know what's best for you and your family. The decision to ease restrictions that allow some businesses to reopen at limited capacity is not a mandate to do so, nor is it a requirement that Iowans dine out, shop, or do anything they're not ready to do. I've asked everyone to exercise personal responsibility from the very beginning. For the business owners that are eager to open their doors, bring their employees back to work, and begin doing business again, I'm confident that they're doing so in a safe and responsible way. Their livelihoods are on the line, and they aren't willing to risk the health of their staff or their customers, which, which is oftentimes like family, just as I'm not willing to risk the health of Iowans or the health of our economy. Today begins week 11 since COVID-19 was confirmed in Iowa. We're at a point where we can start, where we can and must strike a balance between managing virus activity for the long term and getting our economy up and running again. It's not a matter of prioritizing one over the, one over the other. It's about priorita- prioritizing both. The long-term consequences of keeping businesses closed are far-reaching and could have an even greater impact on Iowans than the virus itself. That's why we've implemented an aggressive testing strategy that allows us to monitor 
virus activity across the state and deploy targeted strategies right down to a zip code to help contain and manage it. Expanding testing has also generated significantly more data, better enabling evidence-based decision-making in real time. While we do refer to models and projections from external partners and other resources and appreciate the information that they provide, we know they're based on assumptions and a certain point in time. So we rely more heavily on our real-time data and our expert team of epidemiologists, the Department of Public Health, who are all studying it every day while also consulting with their colleagues nationally, including the CDC and the Coronavirus Task Force. We're also sharing this data with Iowans so that they have a better understanding of how it's driving decisions that affect them. Several days ago, we updated the data dashboard on corona, uh, coronavirus.iowa.gov so Iowans could have access to more of the data we're collecting and tracking. Last week, the update earned us an A-plus from the COVID tracking project. Iowa is one of just 10 states that earned the top grade for the quality of our COVID data, our COVID-19 data reporting. Today, I'm pleased to share that we're raising the bar even higher. Later this afternoon, we'll be implementing yet another update to our data dashboard and sharing even more information with Iowans. This morning, I wanna provide a preview of some of the new data and features that will be included. Then tomorrow, after you've had a chance to see it, we'll provide a more detailed uh, demonstration. So the biggest change you'll notice is the case counts will now be updated in real time throughout the day so that you'll be able to see the numbers coming in um, on, a, on a same day basis. Previously, we scheduled, num we scheduled updates to happen at a specific time each day so that new positive and negative cases could be reported daily either at my press conference or by the media. Because we're now moving to rolling updates in re real time, the need to provide new daily case counts is obsolete. You'll be able to see exactly where the numbers stand where whenever you decide to check the website. If you're tracking the information closely, you'll also see that daily case counts and other data can change over time. And this is due to the case investigation process. For example, when lab results come in overnight, they may be, there may be some that re reported as positive cases for the current day. But through the case investigation, it's learned that some cases were actually identified before the cutoff at 11.59. So a correction is made and those cases are moved to the previous day's count. In this situation, the total number of all positive cases is accurate and remains the same, but the daily numbers uh, shift slightly. This can also happen with other information as more details are learned through case investigation. For example, the county of residence for a positive case may have been initially repeated incorrect, reported incorrectly, but the mistake was later, later discovered through the case investigation process and corrected to attribute the case to individuals' true county of residence. The data is fluid and you may notice some of these changes depending on what you're tracking. While this is a noticeable change from how the information has been shared previously, I believe the transparency of providing it to you in real time makes the information even more valuable and relevant. Other new additions that you'll notice is a trend line for the percent of all individuals who've tested positive compared to the total number of people tested on any given day. 
a trend line for the percentage of individuals who tested positive by county and the ratio of persons tested by county and positive case volumes by county over a 14-day and uh, a rolling three-day average. We're also providing data on serology testing, including the number of positive serology tests by county. Tomorrow, Dr. Pradati will talk more about the use of serology testing and what we're learning from that. And in addition to that, we've also updated the long-term care dashboard to include reporting on current outbreaks, positive cases, and number of individuals who have recovered and more. A breakdown of positive cases by those who are symptomatic versus asymptomatic and positive cases by race, race ethnicity, gender, and age group. So I hope that you'll take some time to explore the site today at coronavirus.iowa.gov and tomorrow we'll demonstrate some of the new functionality. Finally, I'm also pleased to report that a new dedicated call center for Test Iowa is up and running today. The call center is staffed by nurses who can assist Iowans who've completed an assessment or been tested and have questions about the Test Iowa process, issues with getting their results or what to do if they've tested positive. The call center can answer questions about assessments, assessments but they can't assist Iowans with filling it out. If you, take the, um, if you can't take the assessment because you don't have access to an internet, ask a trusted friend or a family member to assist you. The number for Test Iowa Call Center is provided on the website within the assessment and in follow-up in, and in follow-up email communication from um, Test Iowa. Iowans should continue to call 211 with any other questions related to COVID-19, including questions about their health concerns, preventative health measures, assistance from state agencies, or business reopenings. And finally, this morning, I know Iowa parents are concerned about the emerging pediatric illness to, tied to COVID-19. And I've asked Dr. Padati to join me and provide an update about multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Dr. Padati. Thank you, Governor Reynolds. I'd like to take a few moments to talk a bit about this newly recognized condition that we're calling multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. This is something that we're following very closely in order to learn more about. Now, so far, children have made up a smaller proportion of the reported COVID-19 cases. And thankfully, reports of children becoming seriously ill are very rare. However, late last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shared a message alerting healthcare providers and public health professionals to this new kind of inflammatory syndrome that seems to be associated with COVID-19. Friday afternoon, the Iowa Department of Public Health did receive two potential reports of this new syndrome. These reports are in children in Eastern Iowa who are currently stable and we're working with our clinical and local public health providers to gather more information. Now, what we know so far about this syndrome is that it appears to cause fever and signs of inflammation throughout the body. You might have heard this compared to another kind of rare inflammatory condition in children that we call Kawasaki disease. These two syndromes appear similar in that they both seem to cause what we call post-infectious inflammation, meaning that several weeks after a likely infection, 
people might develop signs of inflammation throughout the body. We do think that this is a new condition, though, distinct from Kawasaki disease. Now, like so many things with this response, this is an example of a place where we need to learn more. So in order to help do that, Director Claybaugh and myself have made this new disease a mandatory reportable condition here in the state of Iowa. This allows us to receive these reports from clinicians and public health professionals. It allows us to gather more information and better understand this condition and how we can manage it. In the meantime, we want to remind children and their families here in Iowa to continue to do all the good things that you're already doing. That includes following public health guidance, things like frequent hand washing, social distancing, and the use of cloth-based coverings when you're unable to maintain a distance of six feet. And finally, we just want to remind everyone, including children, that it's important to stay up to date with your routine care, including vaccines. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Governor Reynolds. Thank you, Dr. Badati, and I appreciate the work that you and your team are doing in the Department of Public Health to keep Iowans informed about this important issue. And with that, we'll open it up for questions. We're going to Zach at Channel 5 to start us off. Uh, thank you. Uh, the LSA has released uh, their revenue and budget implications of COVID-19. Uh, tax revenue into the general fund is down over $400 million. That's 36% drop between March 19th and May 5th. So do you have an idea on how the state budget may change? Uh, do you plan on any cuts? And lastly, where is your budget? In April, you said you'd have it ready in April. Yeah, and actually we've been working with the legislature, so we're working on our budget and starting to go over the numbers. And I think LSA, if you read the entire report, said a lot of that was attributed to the deferred tax payments that were due in April that have been deferred until July. And so it's hard to tell exactly at this point what the overall impact of COVID-19 uh, will have on the state budget. But it is, it's why it's important to, in a very safe and responsible way, start to not only protect the health of Iowans, but to look at the health of our economy as well and start to put very um, limited and start to ease some of the restrictions that we have on businesses so that they can, again, start to open up the economy and uh, do it in a safe and responsible way. So we're working with the legislature. They'll be back on, on June. We're having those conversations and uh, uh, we're gonna continue to wait until uh, we'll have a better idea by the end of May. And then as we move through the following months to see what the impact of those deferred tax payments have on the overall budget. Dave Price, Channel 13. Good morning, Governor. Can you help people understand, um, obviously they know a lot of people who've been hurting when so much of the economy was shut down for so long. Leading up to this, there was the talk about peaks and the way you have reopened things. Much has been reopened before we got past peak hospitalizations, peak deaths. Do you think now, do the, does the peak period matter or do you have other data that you use that convince you that it was safer to go ahead and open, yeah. reopen before we moved? well past those. So, so I want to remind Iowans that we did it, um, we didn't just rip off the bandage, we're easing mitigation efforts. So as we start to open up our economy, a lot of times we're doing it at 50% capacity. We're asking that the businesses continue to practice social distancing. We're asking that Iowans, when they go outside to practice social distancing, and if they're at a place where they don't think they can, to have a face covering with them so that they can put a face covering on. As you've witnessed, as you start to um, go 
go to businesses across the state, they also are taking very proactive measures and requiring maybe Iowans to wear a face covering if they're going to uh, shop at their place of business. You see restaurants that are really being thoughtful and taking the time to make sure that they're um, meeting all of the Department of Public Health guidelines and the um, restrictions that have been put in place that allows them to open back up because they want to make sure that they're protecting the health not only of their, of their employees but the health of Iowans as well. And so I've also said, you know, we started with um, it, it's, it's stabilize, recover, and grow. And stabilization, it was all about, you know, protecting the health of Iowans, making sure that we were managing our health care resources, working to, by the mitigation efforts that we put in place, flatten the curve and not overwhelm our health care system. And we've been able to do that, and we were able to demonstrate that and continue to demonstrate that to Iowans on a daily basis. And so because of that, and with the next step that we were able to take, which was significantly increasing our testing capacity in the state of Iowa, as well as putting in place a robust case uh, investigation process so that we can uh, collect real-time data, take a look at where we're seeing potentially, you know, increased virus activity, uh, maybe a cluster of activity, or as we're doing some proactive and very strategic targeted testing in some of our manufacturing facilities and our processing plants. We've been able to see, you know, how that impacts the overall workforce, how we can separate those that are positive, isolate them, get them on a road to recovery, uh, look at uh, separating the shifts, making sure that we have adequate PPE, making sure that the facility is taking all the precautions that the Department of Public Health has put forward in the guidance working with, uh, when it comes to the processing facilities, working with OSHA and the CDC to jointly put together uh, the requirements for the facility. So what we've seen is businesses being responsible, Iowans being responsible, and in addition, we're doing it in a phased-in approach, and so we'll continue to monitor the data as we continue to ease restrictions. You heard me say in my... Um, uh, opening comments that it's been 18 days since we reported Iowa's highest positive cases. The days to double now are at 21 days, which really speaks to the slowing of the spread. That's very positive. Our positivity to rate overall today is 14.5 percent, and I think it's about, uh, it was about 8.5 percent uh, yesterday. So we're seeing some really positive things from that as well. And we're going to continue to monitor it on a daily basis and continue to see how the phased-in process of opening up uh, Iowa is um, how we're managing and working through that. Good morning, Register. Go ahead. Thank you, Governor. One of the protections set to expire in your proclamation next week is the moratorium on evictions and utility shutoffs. Yeah. We've heard from some groups who are expecting an influx of evictions after that expires. With unemployment still in record territory and the virus still spreading, do you plan to extend that? And if not, what steps should be taken to keep vulnerable people in their homes during so this time? So we're actually uh, we're looking in that in conjunction and working with the Iowa Economic Development Authority to maybe put in some um, optional grants that would apply for. Um, uh, the apartment owner. So we're, we're we're looking at a couple different scenarios on how we move forward with that to make sure that we're not removing that too soon, that we're continuing to work with Iowans as we begin to open up our economy and help Iowans get the skills to fill some of the jobs that are available as we begin to move forward. So while we haven't made a decision yet, we're continuing to look at all aspects of the declaration that will expire next week and how we can move forward, again, in a responsible way, being mindful of Iowans 
concerns uh, the impact that the pandemic has had on Iowans across the state. Rod, the Gazette, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Governor. <clears throat> Iowa's approaching its first major holiday with COVID uh, when the Memorial Day weekend begins on Friday. Uh, Louisiana saw a big spike with Mardi Gras over the spring. Our, our readers are wondering, with it being a major camping weekend, will things like restrooms and playgrounds be open in parks with periodic cleanings? And is there concern Iowa will see a spike in positive COVID cases in the aftermath of the holiday outing? Yeah, well, we're going to continue to ask Iowans to be responsible and to practice uh, uh, good hygiene. So if they're sick, they need to stay home. When you're out in public, you need to continue to practice social distancing. Campgrounds meet that criteria. We'll take a look at maybe, you know, what that entails as far as the restrooms. And I don't believe we have any indication of opening up the campground or the playgrounds at this point. Um, but we are looking at a lot of data this week, especially as we move into the overall expiration of the declaration next week. So we're looking at a lot of those uh, different requirements to see what's necessary to continue with and if there's additional things that we can ease up on. Do you have anything to add to that? Okay. You know, and the other thing is, remember that if you're a vulnerable Iowan with underlying or have underlying conditions, we are not recommending at this time that you uh, change your habits. You should continue to stay home and limit your uh, your trips to essential errands and make sure that you're um, cognizant of your surroundings when you do that and you're wearing a face covering. So those still remain the same. We still have in place uh, limiting social gather gatherings to 10 or less. So while we're easing some restrictions, I think we still still have some practical guidelines in place that will give Iowans an opportunity to get out there and enjoy the holiday and enjoy their family, but to do it in a responsible manner. Caroline, go ahead. Good morning, Governor. Um, can you uh, describe the process from when a test Iowa test is collected at a test Iowa site to the moment it gets to county public health departments, the results? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Caroline. So the sample gets transmitted to the state hygienic lab, um, which runs a sample and gets a test result. That information goes into the Qualtrics uh, system uh, at the state hygienic lab. And then that data is transferred to the state health department and it gets entered into the disease surveillance system. And then that gets commingled with all of the other test results that are received from a variety of different labs, including the state hygienic lab and a number of other national reference laboratories, in addition to laboratories at hospital systems in our state. And then those test results then get transmitted um, back to the website dashboard so that we can provide our daily case counts. And they're going to be getting with the updates, right? Yeah. Thank you. And those transfers uh, through the testing sites are made periodically throughout the day so we can really chime the workflow at the State Hygienic Lab so we can continue to uh, help just with, with um, the timing of the test coming in and meeting the capacity that we have uh, that we can run through the State Hygienic Lab. We're going to press at KCCI. Hi there. So was wondering what the... Uh, statuses or what you're seeing from the use of remdesivir curious how that's been going uh 
Dr. Padati, would you want to take that question? It was in reference to remdesivir. Yes, thank you, Governor. Um, I don't have any specific updates to share with you in terms of outcomes for the use so far here, but I can tell you that we continue to work with a group of clinicians, pharmacists, public health, and clinical personnel throughout the state um, to keep an eye on lessons learned. And when we have more to share, we can do that. Thank you. Next question, we're going to go to Grant at Iowa Public Radio. Yeah, my question is with this inflammatory syndrome that is coming up in children, how should schools take that into account as they prepare to uh, make their returning learning plans? Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 as Dr. Badati said, well, Dr. Badati, do you want to answer that? Sure. So I think it's an important thing to recognize, again, just as we have all along, that as we learn more, we need to continue to collaborate to better understand these things and what we can do to manage them. And this is another example of a place that we're working very closely with clinical and public health um, you know, partners, not just here in Iowa, but across the United States, and of course with our federal partners to gather more information. And just like everything else, we would want to encourage people to continue to follow the public health recommendations that we've been making that helps keep people healthy and safe. And it does include things like the hand washing and us working very closely with um, a variety of groups or settings to help make sure that as we bring people back to activities, we do it in a safe way and in a way where we can keep an eye on um, any additional concerns or new things that might arise. Great. Kay Henderson, Radio Island. Governor, given the tragically high mortality rate in nursing homes, mm -hmm. last Monday, Vice President Pence asked states to test all residents and staff at nursing homes within two weeks. That would mean by May 23rd or maybe Sunday the 25th. There are 23,000 residents and 55,000 staff in Iowa nursing homes. When and how will those 78,000 Iowans be tested? Well, actually, we're off to a really good start, and we started this a long time ago. So Iowa has been very proactive in really working with our long-term care facilities and the staff, and I'm really, really proud of our team, the Department of Public Health, to really put this strategy together. And then later this week, I'll be laying out a, you know, a complete um, testing strategy that we'll be implementing moving forward. But remember, I indicated last week that you know we've had done some testing in over 420 facilities, so we're about at 90. Um, and we're going to continue to work with facilities to um, build that out. We have a strike team that's going into Cerro Gordo um, this week. Worth County will be able to participate in that. We're getting a lot of requests from other communities to implement something similar to what Dubuque did. Um, Will you do a community test site which incorporates the long-term care facilities? Um, staff, mostly, it, it works better. You know, we have to go into the facilities to do the, the residence testing. Um, but they've been, you've been very good about being proactive. Do you have anything that you want to add to that, maybe? I was just going to say that um, we, because the business governor Reynolds mentioned, um, we, this, this, if the staff are being tested externally outside of the facility, we are offering to provide those facilities with enough supplies so that they can test all of their residents as well. Yes, they can do that, and that's right. We're going to take two more questions. Lynn, Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hi, Governor. Um, now that uh, more islands are able to go and, and return to work, um, you know, I know you talked about earlier that most businesses are 
um, you know, conducting things in a safe manner. But um, what should workers do if they feel unsafe about yep. um, their working environment and any possible spread of, of COVID-19 when they start returning? Yep. So remember, we have that hotline, that toll-free number where Iowans can go on. We've provided some assistance to walk through any concerns that they may have. And if you go to coronavirusiowa.gov, you'll see the number there that they can call if they have concerns about that um, their safety is not being met. Last question, David, Associate Press. Yes, Governor, thank you. My question centers on the Iowa OSHA response to complaints of, of uh, concerns at the uh, Perry Tyson plant. I, I believe our data shows that we received from the state that the first complaint was around April 11th, and it took nine days for OSHA to respond to that, and in another week to get, I think, response back from Tyson. Are you, are you satisfied with those types of responses? And I know we'll start looking back at how we dealt with some of this yeah. as we move forward. And I just wonder how, yeah. you, how you take uh, that. Well, yeah, I, David, I'd have to look at the specifics on that. I'm not 100% sure. So I can review that uh, after the press conference and be ha more than happy to get back to you. You know, we have an incredible team that's working incredibly hard. I want to just give a shout out to the state workers. Um, they, they are working 24-7, seven days a week to really meet the needs of Iowa ones but you know there are times when we fall short and if that's the case and we can do better we're going to do better so we'll look through um, the information that you're speaking to and uh, we'll be sure and get back to you get get a response back to you on that okay Thanks, everyone. all right uh, governor kim reynolds your daily press conference we'll take a time out matt rudy golf digest joins us next uh, as we continue on here, Miller and Condon take you till noon on Des Moines Sports Station 1460 KXNO and 106.3. We can build it. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, with you until noon. Let's get Matt Rudy in here. Golf Digest, of course, Michigan State alum Matt Rudy is. By the way, did you see the gal that did the um, the Zoom call? I yes. Guess? Oh, my God, was that ever. Of all the Big Ten teams. So creative, Trent, so yes. creative. Really was really well done. Matt Rudy, Golf Digest, joins us. Hello, Matt. Good to talk to you. Uh, Trent and Ken hey, in Des Moines. Hey. How's things? You know, uh, we're all healthy here. And, Good. Uh, climbing the walls a little bit. Got yeah. a house full of kids, but uh, we're doing okay. I had a little ankle surgery, and I was down for a few weeks, but back up and about. And I'm happy that we're actually talking about golf. Yeah, I am too, Matt Rudy. It's uh, it was a, it was nice to see it on TV yesterday. I didn't know what to expect. I was entertained. Of course, it wasn't a tournament, right? These guys aren't going uh, after like I don't know. I think they were they were trying clearly. I'm not sure uh, what kind of preparation they had had leading up to it, but it was uh, it was certainly good to see. And you know what? Maybe my biggest takeaway what from it was not the event itself. The guys carrying their own bags. <laughs> I thought that was great. Well, if, I think if you're a professional athlete, you should be able to carry a golf bag for 18 right. holes. But but it does beg the question: When the last time was that they actually did that? Because uh, I've I've been around a lot of tour players off you know in off weeks, and they definitely prefer uh, super tuned up carts that go twice as fast as normal, so they can yeah. tear around. And you'll see groups of four, five, six, seven, eight people all just you know tear out of there late afternoon and play and then you know play 
18 holes in two hours because they have super fast carts. The the walking pace was was fun to see and no caddies. That was interesting right. too, where you see people have to pull their own club and decide things for themselves. That was a that was a, a fresh look. I liked it. Another fresh look was Seminole Golf Club. I've heard of it, yeah. but I had never seen it before. And certainly seeing it play out that way, they talked about it during the telecast. Those greens are incredibly difficult without having caddies of any type, and certainly ones that know that course, how difficult it was. Tell us a little bit more about what you know about Seminole Golf Club, and I'm going to guess that's probably a place I'll never be able to be a member at. Yeah, it's uh, it's super private, and what makes it interesting is it's super private, and it's plopped down right in Palm Beach, and if you drove by, you'd never even know it was there. Wow. kind of condos along the road leading to it, and there's not a lot of signage and that's the way they like it. And it's got an interesting mix of super powered members like Augusta national with more of a addition of sporting heroes, Larry Fitzgerald's member and Tom Brady's a member. And um, so, so I think they have some, they, they, I would imagine they probably have some spirited uh, money games there, but it, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. And the, it's, it's a lot like St. Andrews in that the wind is a big, uh, guard there so if the wind is down the, the, as far as players hit it now the course is vulnerable but when the wind blows a little bit and it's and it, and it plays fast it can uh, it can be tricky that's why i mean ben hogan played there all through uh the the off season to get ready for the beginning of the tour season and the masters because the conditions there were were close enough to augusta to replicate what he was going to see in april uh, were you okay with the ending? I mean, it had gone past the window. Not that NBC was going to cut a wave by any means, but were you okay with them, you know, closest to the pin type of contest at the end of it? Yeah, I mean, it was better than the Tiger and Phil thing, you know, where they, where they had kind of a weird 60-yard shot in the dark that wasn't actually a golf shot. This was actually on a hole, right. so that was better. And, uh, and, and I think it's a charity event that's, you know, designed to have an ending. Right. And, and, and these these are all super talented people, and I don't think it's any different than if you'd said, "All right, let's go on the patio, and you have to play it from the patio, you know, in, you know, to a bucket in the in the parking lot or something." It's just a, it's an arbitrary uh, way to determine which charity gets the money. But from what I understand, all of the charities involved were were happy with the outcome, no matter really how it would have turned out. So I think that was the that was the main point, and and I think to see professional athletes doing their thing again we're all so starved for that i don't i don't think i, I wouldn't have cared really if they'd even done like a, a match of cards or something to figure it out or or you know take the insoles out of their shoes and measure who's uh, whose insole was longest whichever way you wanted to do it yeah it was more about the the exhibition and seeing tour players than you know the specific uh, you know getting out the swords and fighting to the death in a, you know, in a, in a head-to-head battle. Now, of course, the it's Twitter and there's controversy out there because we didn't get to see the measurement on television. A, what are the cameras at NBC doing? And B, uh, I mean, it looked on television like they got it wrong. Obviously, they had a tape measure out there. I saw a picture afterwards, but just a weird conclusion there. Uh, I, I, I think there's I mean, number one, I don't know what what would be gained by rigging it. Right. I mean, who who's winning? Who's winning and losing? I mean, are you? I guess there's still little to bet on now. There, hmm. you could say it's yeah. because of betting, but um, the the reality is is that the the crew it takes to broadcast a, a golf event it's a massive crew, and they had a skeleton crew there 
to try to do this to keep people as safe as possible. And you just can't cover things the same way. I mean, when you watch what goes on at the Masters, for example, and you can see everything, just literally any shot you want to see, there's a giant infrastructure in place to be able to do that. So you go to a course that doesn't host these events ever, you know, doesn't, you know, and you, and you don't have the full complement of, of cameramen to come in and do something, uh, you know, you just kind of do the best you can. And um, I, I guess this shows that we're really out of things to talk about. <laughs> we're talking about a conspiracy That's theory about a charity golf event. Uh, I'm with you, Matt Rudy, Golf Digest is our guest. Matt, uh, hindsight being what it is, uh, did, did, did the British Open pull the pin on 2022 mm. quickly? No, I don't, I don't think they did. I think they had to do it because of the pandemic insurance they have. And oh. um, I, I think you could you could postpone it and roll the dice that it doesn't get canceled later, you know, if things get worse or whatever. But then you don't have the same, from what I understand about their policy, that, you know, they would essentially be rolling the dice that they could actually have it. And so they had to make a hard decision early in order to collect the, the insurance, you know, to get to get protected by the insurance pad. And it was similar with Wimbledon. You know, they were in the same mm. boat there. So they were kind of pushed into a hard position. And also they're not as, they don't get the benefit of really attractive weather later in the year. Mm-hmm. So if you start deciding to have events in October, November in in Great Britain. It's like having events in Iowa or in Michigan or in Chicago at that time of year. I mean, I, I suppose you could have a World Series game if you had to, but I don't know that you could have the British Open. Um, but it, it, they were kind of pushed into that because of the in, insurance situation. And to be honest, uh, we're all rooting super hard for this to, to calm down and for us to be able to watch, you know, guilt free when these tournaments are played toward the end of the year. But right now, we're still hoping that's the case. We don't know that that's going to be a you know, that's a, true. A seamless thing to experience. So I, I think the jury is still out if that's a, you know, going to be if it's going to go off without out a hitch. And we're talking about Augusta National, for example, a place where they have more control over the the square footage on the grounds of any place, even including the White House, you know, on the planet. And if if they're trying to figure out how to keep control over the grounds and get the you know, get the playing conditions to be what they want and to make it safe for the competitors. It's going to be way tougher to do it at a place where it's you know where the event is moving around and it's just a one week of thing a year. A few weeks away from things getting started again with a real tournament. Of course, we have uh, Tiger and Phil in their matchup with the quarterbacks coming up next weekend. But the Charles Schwab, my question is: sounds like about what a month that they're going to have no fans in attendance, at least according to the schedule I'm looking at. Fans possibly involved in the Quad Cities, just down the road from us over in Silvis, Illinois, for the John Deere Classic, July 6th through the 12th. Normally doesn't get a great field because of the British. That could be different. And secondly, is that the target date where fans will be allowed into a PGA event? I think technically that's the target date, but a lot depends on the behavior of people leading up to this and leading up to that. Uh, I think if people are sensible and, and do things according to the plan and we have kind of an orderly rollout of all this stuff and i'm not just talking about golf you know all the sports that we're talking about um if it becomes you know a a complete freak show with people crammed in next to each other and and cases of people getting sick and you know the the perception of this is 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 just as important as the reality of what's going on and and if you get lots of kind of freelancing going on the 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 blowback about it is going to be too strong, I think, for a league to to even 
make a decision based strictly on the facts. They have to go on the perception of what's going on, too. And, and I think the, the challenge, there, to me, there's two challenges for golf. The first challenge, obviously, is players are not controlled like players on a team might be, where you could make decisions on you know X number of teams in a certain league. These are all independent contractors who can show up or not, which, which in, in one way is good because if there are players that don't think the risk is worth it, they won't come and you find other players. But it doesn't let you make broad you know, decisions and, 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 and push people to go do things that they're not otherwise going to do. The other, the other element you know, is the fan element. Golf's outside. That's great. You can spread out a little bit more than normal, but you, know, you, you don't have the ability to, to patrol everybody across a big you know, 200-acre property the way you would inside a baseball stadium or inside a football stadium. So there's a, you know, I think it's a lot like you know, herding cats. <laughs> if, if we can be good at herding cats between now and middle of the summer, then it'll start to open up if we, we can't afford if we can't like, like my, like what I say to my kids, if we can't have nice things, we're going to have to take the nice things away. <laughs> hey, Matt, uh, my last thing for you, and Trent uh, touched on it briefly this weekend, the quarterbacks, and, of course, Phil and Tiger, uh, Peyton and, and Brady. I, I think it's going to be a great television event. I'm not sure if the quarter, what kind of game the quarterbacks have, uh, but I think it's going to do a very good number. I think a lot of people are going to watch that event on Sunday. Oh, I think a ton of people are going to watch it because there's not a lot of options, number one. And, and I think the... When we we've seen some of these events now happen, you know the Phil versus Tiger thing, and even the thing we just watched here at Seminole, all these are learning experiences for everybody involved, and and the, all the people involved in this are not they're not rookies when it comes to interacting on TV, and they're not rookies in terms of putting on a show, and all these things that we see the the good parts and the less good parts and the less interesting parts, I think inform the next one that comes out. So hopefully that means, you know, banter and 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 it's and it's covered in a way that the, the the commentators are adding a little spice to it. I think we're just getting better and better at doing these one-off things, and I'm and I'm hoping I'm hoping for this one to be better. But again, there has there's been so little live golf that the bar is pretty low for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just happy to see people at golf on TV. It was great. I enjoyed uh, yesterday so much. And two final things from me uh, to let you go on. Dustin Johnson, just watching him, said he hasn't really practiced a whole lot. He just rolls out, looked like maybe he found out about it Friday. Hey, you're supposed to be playing. (laughs) He is so talented. Is he, in terms of raw talent, I know that's difficult to kind of capture, but boy, he is so talented. Has he got to be towards the top of that list? And secondly, Matthew Wolf for a long time, boy, he seemed seemed out of element. You could tell he was the young guy of the group. (laughs) I think the two guys that have the most talent are are in that or on TV, Rory and Dustin, yeah. those two guys have an immense amount of talent. And, and physically, and, and Brooks Koepka is right in that group too, just in terms of physically imposing something on a ball. And and, and Matt Wolf, I think what you see, and, 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 and it's interesting too because Ricky Fowler, you can bring that, you can bring him into this conversation too because what it does is it, is it shows you that you have to be able to hit all those shots and do the physical things like all four of those guys can do. But the emotional element of winning and being a champion is another piece. And and if you look at all those guys in that group, they've all had varying levels of success. Matt Wolf is obviously brand new, but you have to learn how to win majors and you have to learn how to handle your emotions. And Brooks Kepka is so good at that that he's passed three of those four guys in majors in a, in a much 
shorter period of time. So it's really interesting to watch how all those elements have to come together to be a champion. Uh, Michigan State grad Matt Rudy. Matt, you good with uh, Mel Tucker? Sure. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it was a good hire, and, and I think it reflects the reality of uh, the, the marquee level where Michigan State is. It's a great program and a great school, but you know, you're not. I mean, the, the idea that you're going to convince some super deluxe NFL coach to come do it is not going to happen. But uh, you, you want a guy that's going to work hard and recruit hard, and, and I think it's so important, especially at Michigan State, to have somebody that's going to have integrity and, and not drive the program into the ditch. I don't think we need any more bad news about our about our alma mater. So I'm happy with it so far. Good stuff. October 3rd, Sparty at Kinnick Stadium. Should be fun. Matt, we'll talk before that. Look forward to uh, doing this more often. Uh, glad golf is back and glad you're back with us. Thank you, Matt Rudy. See ya. Good to talk to you, Matt Rudy. Golf Digest. Is uh, we talk a little golf to uh, wrap things up. That was good fun. It was, it was good to have golf. It was good to have live sports this week. I watched some NASCAR yesterday. Did you? I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. you. I, I flipped did. over twice. Did you? I uh, saw towards the beginning of the of the race and probably maybe ninety laps in something like that. Yeah, I'm not going to say I watched every lap. I was no. I was back, but I did watch probably. Well, my watch for sure. I watched more than I normally would have had there been other options. When NASCAR was exploding during the '90s, did you get into it then? No. No, I never did. Just never have been part of your sports viewing? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. It's, it, baseball is so dominant for, for me, mm-hmm. sporting-wise. Um, and, and I was at the track all the time, too, back then. Right, right? yeah. You know, calling the races at Prairie. Um, so Sunday afternoons weren't for that kind of racing. Right. They're for the horse racing right. for you. you. You couldn't bet on you at the at the time. <laughs> uh, at the time. So we, we had somebody text me said about William Hill, you know, because Prairie is still closed. Right, and, yep. And, and now that there are live sports to bet on, where the question was, how does uh, if you if you did have, hit something and you mm-hmm. want to get your money out, you know you, you don't have to go to Prairie to cash out, right? Right, right. at William Hill, you got uh, the app, you're set up there, then you're right back into your account. Yep. Um, there, William Hill, their their uh, uh, bookmaker with their head, but uh, Nick Bogdanovich. Yes, Nick Bogdanovich. Yep. He was asked on a radio show this morning in Vegas. There was, of course, there was NASCAR. You could bet on the golf. But those weren't the two best. Those weren't the two most popular wagers over the weekend. You know what was Russian table tennis? It's been huge, really. So Doug Kazarian, and by a significant margin, more oh, money yeah. was bet on Russian table tennis than there was on the Darlington race and on the golf exhibition. Doug Kazarian, who's kind of the head of uh, what you see in terms of their daily wager show that they have on ESPN, does a lot of work at ESPN Chalk also, and also has a podcast. And he devoted a full podcast last week really? to Russian table tennis. He said it's fun to watch. He's getting to know these guys. And so it's... where do you watch? Is online? You don't... Online, yeah. yeah. Okay. Find a feed there. This looks like a bunch of guys playing at the YMCA. Well, a little better, I would assume. Not really. Really? <laughs> these are like amateurs? Well, they are, quote-unquote, professionals, but... Some of the guys are older. Looks like they just rolled in over their lunch break and are going to go play some ping pong. So who's the Dustin Johnson of Russian table right. tennis, right? Yeah. You've got to figure out that question. No, anyways. And they play like five, six matches during the day, hmm. and they come back. Sometimes you get a day off, sometimes you don't. But the public is firing on yes. r- uh, Russian table tennis. I don't get it. You can find an angle. 
I guess. To find a way to win. I guess. All right. Uh, thank you to uh, Bobby Hansen for joining us early in the program. That was really good. It was really good of Bobby Hansen to uh, carve out some time uh, for us to to recap that. The podcast is up for those of you who so so inclined that missed it earlier. He was on with us uh, at 1030. Um, what else we got coming up? We're going to try and get Alex Halstead to thank him for what he's done for us over the years. He's hung it up at 24-7 Sports. That'll be tomorrow. Uh, Scott Dockerman. Zubin Mahente be part of the program as well. Murph and Andy at 2, the Fanatics at 4, and then the Morning Rush will start off Tuesday, as they always do, at 6 a.m. We're Miller and Condon, 10 to noon. Thanks for being here. On Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM.